welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in for this special episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, where we are going to actually discuss a book that came out. The book is Taking on Big Pharma. Taking on Big Pharma, the uh, Dr. Charles Bennett's story or Dr. Charles Bennett's battle. I do know Charles Bennett. I was a fellow at Northwestern University when Charlie was a faculty and he was taking care of patients in the VA and I have interacted with him. I continue to interact with him to this day as part of a sonar network, which is part of the Department of uh, Pharmacy at the University of South Carolina. It's a collection of collaborators that are interested in uncovering some of the adverse events for various interventions that we often uh, uh, deal with. So um, it's really um, uh, interesting because I came across uh, this book that was written about Charlie, and it was written by uh, Jack Getman and Terry Leclerc, Leclerc. And I apologize, Terry, if you're listening, because uh, I promised that I will not uh, mispronounce and misspell your name. And here I am again. So my sincere apologies. But the authors of this book are joining me today to talk about the story of Charlie Bennett and what happened. Now, I'm not going to give you all the story, but I'll tell you that Charlie was a professor at Northwestern University. And just overnight, somehow, he was accused by fraud, and he was told that he misused government uh, money and federal grants, and uh, that he is being accused of that, and therefore, he needs to leave the institution, and he had lawyers all over him, and a lot of things happened. And suddenly, he meets these two amazing uh, authors on a cruise, and he tells them the story, and uh, while they thought initially he was crazy, they decided to actually go after the smoke and to actually investigate and to figure out what indeed happened. And what follows are a, is a series of uh, unbelievable events that you will all read in the book, taking on Big Pharma, Dr. Charles Bennett's battle. Um, there's a lot of information in the book about academia, and I actually challenged the authors as to why didn't we have the dark side of academia as part of the title. But again, I'm going to leave you to know better by listening to this show. I really appreciate the time that both authors have given me, Jack Getman and Terry Leclerc. It's been a pleasure having them on this show. Uh, and I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. It could be a little bit disturbing. It could be a little bit uh, revealing, but it is a must listen. And the book is an absolute must read. I have told the authors and I've told Charlie myself that it has a documentary written all over it. And I hope that you will agree with me after listening to the show. Before I air the episode that we taped on February 27, 2023, I'd like to plug the show by asking you to rate the show, find the show on all podcast outlets, and thing, and please write a brief review. I would appreciate your support and doing so. Also, check out my own book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. It is the story 
of the patients that took Monsanto to trial, the first three trials where I testified as an expert witness on behalf of the patients and Monsanto lost these three trials. This, my book, Toxic Exposure, depicts the stories of these three trials. I appreciate your support and without further ado, taking on Big Pharma, Dr. Charles Bennett's battle. Well, we're going to start a little bit with a little bit of an intro about you. I'd like my listeners to know who you are and the people behind the authors of the book. So, Terry, we'll start with you. I'm an English professor, taught at the law school, University of Texas School of Law for 23 years, where I met Jack. And I retired after writing some books and a lot of articles and things one does as an academic. I retired and went on a cruise with Jack, and that's how we met Charlie. So my advice is either don't retire or don't go on a cruise because you'll spend the next five years working on adverse reactions. And my advice is never, ever mess up the name of an English professor. That's definitely, <laughs> I lost 700 points. No problem. Jack, Jack, a little bit about you. Jack Getman. Uh, I'm a retired law professor. I was a law professor for... 50 years throughout the country. I began at Indiana University. I went to Stanford. I went to Yale. I taught at the University of Chicago. I taught at Harvard. And then I ended up my career at the University of Texas, which is where I met Terry. And um, I, I principally taught labor law, but I also... Uh, began more and more to write about and teach about legal education. And I wrote a book about it. And it was through that, in part, that we got to meet Charlie. And uh, Charlie's a very, very interesting guy. He cares about academic credentials. And when he discovered that I had taught at Yale, he was he became really interested in us writing his story. Um, and then he sent us, you know, it was interesting. He sent us the complaint that had been. Oh, don't issued. give it away yet. Hold on, hold on, hold oh, on. Give okay. it away yet. No, 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 we can't okay. go into the complaint yet. That's why we're going to, okay. we're going to tease the listeners to make sure that uh, they understand sorry. what's going on. No, 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 no. It's good. But you taught few schools I've never heard of. I mean, who heard of Harvard and Yale and and these places? You know, it's um, Charlie had heard of them. Char yeah. Charlie had heard of them. Yes, yeah. but uh, Jack. So you both, uh, I read the you know the the beginning of the book, and you literally uh, caught my attention right away. I always feel the first five six pages of any book are the ones that's just gonna the hook, right? The hook, like you just and you definitely hooked me on that. I mean, you and your I wife to, were on a cruise, right? You were on a cruise and just having a good time. I hate to admit that. I, I too, think that's the best thing in the book, and Terry wrote it. Well, she, I, she I, just I, sat down I would have guessed it. that. Yeah, well, good for you then. <laughs> so, so you were on a cruise just having some good time, and then you suddenly meet. Charlie, take us through the first meeting, how this happened. Well, there were two parts, really. We met him at a Jewish dinner, and people were sitting around talking about, you know, what one does and whatnot. And 
Charlie was interested because Jack was an academic. So the next day, he approached Jack um, with a file folder under his arm at the bar. So we're on a, on a cruise at a bar, and Charlie is telling Jack all of the stuff that has happened to him. And it was just an, an amazing step into a rabbit hole that we had certainly not expected. And and when we talked, we exchanged ideas. But when we came home, much to certainly my surprise, there was a, a whole uh, set of materials, as I said earlier, including the complaint against him, which I assumed, because I have had a long history representing people who are accused of things in the labor field. And normally, even if you, the person is innocent, they've done a few things and you discover that the case against them is a little bit stronger than they let on, which is what I expected to find in the complaint against Charlie. But I kept looking for, you know, they accused him of violating the False Claims Act, which meant using government money for his own benefit. And if he did that, there should be a complaint that he took this money from this fund and he spent it this way and he took money in another fund and he spent it in another way and these expenditures were inappropriate and blah, blah, blah. There was none of that. I looked at it and the only thing they actually accused him of was not following government guidelines and when he wrote his reports. Now, I have written government reports on funds that I've been granted, and I never paid any attention to their recommendation. I wanted to tell them what my report was about. I wouldn't want to, you know, follow this and you cross your T here and then you have that and so on. So I saw that Charlie was accused of what seems to me not only not only was it not serious, but I had done it myself. And most academics who did good research wrote their own reports. They didn't sit there with a government guideline. So I waited till I saw and I showed it to Terry. And I said, do you see anything wrong here? What did he do? And and it was nothing. It was that their complaint. And by the way, I called up um, both the lawyer who filed the complaint as a civil matter and the assistant U.S. attorney for Northern Illinois. And I, and I called Charlie's lawyer, which is another business. And um, at no point, and I, I have done this sort of thing before because I do have a history and was once the president of the American Association of University Professors, uh, in which position I my whole job was to defend faculty members in trouble. And usually you can make out a case against them. But when I try to make out the case against Charlie, and Terry tried to make out the case against Charlie, there was no case, nor have we ever found one. Terry... I'm curious to back up just a little bit. Um, you know, meeting someone at a bar with a folder full of papers. I mean, what was your first impression, though? Yeah, I think first. I think it was impression, crazy. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Um, I've, I've moderated that view somewhat over the five years, but um, he was a nut. Here's a guy who goes around with a folder of clippings that say, oh, he did this great thing and he got screwed and um, everybody's against him and he's going to lose his job and life is horrible, but he's really a good guy. I'm looking at him thinking, Cruz, I don't have a folder of my clippings with me on board. And so I really didn't have a very good impression, I must say, about Charlie. So what was, what was, and I think these first impressions are really important a little bit. Um, so what was the thing that suddenly changed your mind where you said, okay, he may be crazy, but let me look into this. Was there like this rate lifting yeah. step moment? Just what Jack is saying, that when we got off the boat and received all these materials, the materials said nothing. So we couldn't figure out why this guy was in so much trouble, um, had his his professional life almost destroyed over what looked like nothing. And then when Jack, it was a long five years, Jack talked to a lot of the people involved in the story and and none of them had it. For, for an attorney to say, oh, well, there's nothing there, there, you're right. Yeah. Shocking. Jack, as I was reading, <clears throat> I, I imagined you almost an investigative journalist. Like you, you obviously... Both of you put so much effort into calling people and reaching to people. Did you did you start as when you look at things, you looked at the folder and you thought, okay, I need to look into this a little bit deeper. Did you map out a plan? Who am I going to call first? Like what what, what did you have a strategy into mm, letting no. me call people? Good and question. maybe just maybe tell listeners a little bit when you say they filed the complaints, who are the they? Just to give them some background. Great question. Yeah, that's a very good question, and possibly we could have done it more quickly if we had sat down and developed a plan. What we did was say, this looks strange. This is a, a man, obviously, who has achieved a fair amount, and he's lost his job, um, and he's he went from Northwestern to the pharmacy school at South Carolina, uh, which meant, you know, a significant drop in academic status. And we couldn't find anything. So we tried to find, there must be, even though I have represented people who were in, in trouble, I figured this, there had to be something that was that was a real case against him. And we both looked into it. And something else, Chadi, that was really interesting to me, they wouldn't talk to us. Charlie was a tenured faculty member at Northwestern. And when he called to talk to the chairman of the very department that Charlie was in, he wouldn't talk to us. And then Jack called and tried to talk to the head legal counsels. And at first they were sort of, you know, they said a few things. And then Jack got this formal letter saying, uh-uh, we're not talking to you about any of this. Well, that's odd. And I mean, it's an it, academic world. It is odd because, as I said, I've handled other cases, and it's always you call up a lawyer. I say, I'm a professor of law. I've taught this in this place, and I'm, you know, it doesn't sound right to me. Can you give me some of the legal details so I understand it better? And they do, and then you know the case better. But as Terry said, Within a very short time, we got a letter saying we're not going to talk to you 
about Charlie Bennett. Why? So so let's let's maybe try to take listeners through what were the allegations. The Charlie was a professor at Northwestern and doing some research and work. And something happened where suddenly the tables turned against him and he was forced to to resign or to leave. Can you recall at least what were the accusations, although you did not find enough material in them, but what were what was he accused of? Stark law, uh, fraud? Like, what was he accused of? No, well, one, uh, the woman who represented one of his accusers said to me, well, he committed fraud. I, I, that's what I had to show under the False Claims Act. So I said, well, yes, that would be really important. What fraud did he commit? I didn't hear anything. I, I called his lawyer to try to ask him. And he said, he said, I, I can't talk to you. I'd be violating uh, a pr privacy. I He's my client. I can't talk to you unless he gives me approval. In two seconds, Charlie gave him approval. He still wouldn't talk to me. One of the things that was unique about Charlie's case is that there was no case against him. And they never told us but his own lawyer never really sounded like Charlie's lawyer. He, his own lawyer uh, sounded like lawyer for Northwestern and not lawyer for Charlie. And Chad, you may be asking about this because, yes, he was accused of not dotting the I's and whatnot. But during the investigation, which because it was federal money, the um, Department of Justice came in. And so during their investigation of what was going on, they did discover that money was gone from his from his grants, from his federal grants. And that is what has hounded him across the country. But it was interesting to us, finally, we it took a while to get to this, but we read the transcripts of all of the depositions taken about this missing money. And finally, they discovered that she confessed that an assistant associate, like a secretary, had stolen the money. She had had Charlie sign off on the money while he was in the hospital for prostate cancer. He didn't remember it. But later when they asked him, he said, oh, yeah, that's probably a good good cause or whatever. But it wasn't. She had she had created a, a fake identity. She had opened a bank account. They traced every bit of that money that was lost uh -huh. to her, and she had admitted it. Yeah. For the next four years, the Department of Justice followed Charlie, saying he must have had something to do with it. So basically, Charlie had federal grant money to conduct research, right? and then some money was missing. Um, right. what, what alerted the Department of Justice that some money was missing to start at least the investigation, which was traced to his assistant? You know, that's a, that's a great question, and it's not clear what started it. What we do know that they discovered that some money from his account had been used to pay for um, stock in a company called ATS Data. And then they investigated, and it turned out that 
a, a woman who later pleaded guilty to this, who had worked for Charlie, and she said, yes, I invented ATS data to go on a, and then took all the money and spent it on my honeymoon, which we, my now husband and I went into the Caribbean. Must have been a heck of a weapon. Must have been a heck of a I'm trying to think, okay, there's an investigator. He was accused of this. They discovered that somebody was working with him, stole the money, did all of this. She confessed, case closed, and he's acquitted. I don't get, so why Why do you he's think? Not. Well, uh, I hear, you know, that's know. really, you're asking very good questions, and they're at the border of what we know, because... It isn't obvious why what this woman said would ever lead to Charlie. But as you probably know, when government investigate, they like to to um, increase the level of the uh, of the of the person they were investigating, and they got her finally. She said it was me. I did it. I spent it all on my honeymoon. And most and Charlie had nothing to do with it. Finally, after really after several interviews, she did say something like he said he'd take care of me. That's that's the closest to evidence of any wrongdoing. And yeah. that was one time, yeah. you know, a whole bunch. And she was fined twelve dollars, no. and she, I believe she was sentenced to time already served. She spent so, one day Jack, in jail. Yeah, Jack, this is a legal question. So when you when you try to talk to people like the you know assistant district attorney and these folks, um, and they refuse to talk to you, is there something by law that they must talk to you? I mean, or they can't because you technically were not representing Charlie, right? Yes, but you don't have to be representing. But um, what I have used in the past was the, you know, the Freedom of Information Act and saying and saying, you know, I can file a claim under this. But once they, once they sent us a letter saying basically we're not going to tell you anything, they already had not told us anything, and then they wrote and said we're not going to answer any questions. We're not going to submit to any interview. We're not telling you anything. Then comes the question, do you try to use legal process to force them to sh share their investigation with you? Or do you uh, work outside, talk to people who knew Charlie, talk to people who worked in places, you know, get, to develop your own picture? Uh, both Terry and I are investigators and uh, investigators of reality so we're used to we're used to putting together what happened in complicated situations from our own investigation you know from our own shoe leather and talking to people and calling up people and you know one of the reasons it took so many years but we put this story together for ourselves because uh, Charlie's lawyer, who should have, uh, you know, been happy to have our support, wouldn't talk to us. Uh, and it, there was a complexity to this. Um, 
his lawyer worked with another lawyer and the other lawyer had represented Amgen. So, so Charlie's lawyer and the uh, Northwestern lawyer were actually both compromised. Uh, so, so we so, only discovered that later. Yeah. So, so it's, so again, what, what, as I listen to you, it seems like this is the academician, somehow the institution turned back against him at some point. How, where does uh, Terry the pharma piece comes in? Because the title of the book is "Taking on Big Pharma," sure. as opposed to "Taking on Big Academia." So tell me, bring me that link, um, because uh, I'm not going to lie. In reading the book, mm -hmm. I was very upset against the academic world more than any other thing, because these are the people that technically supposed to protect you academically, your integrity, all of these things. I was more upset about about that than anything else. Well, we believe that there were three megalithic opponents to what was going on with Charlie, and that it began with Charlie publicly stating that a product for Amgen could cause injury or death. It was right after that that Northwestern suddenly came up with this fraud theory. And from the fraud theory, then it went to the... AG office. So you're right, it was a tumble. But why would it why would a pharmaceutical company, I guess it's always our question, that it supported Charlie, liked him, he was a fair-haired boy for a while. Why would they then not take his advice? He had told them that this is a problem. And that one of the men said, um, if you go with this, if you announce it, I'll we will destroy you. That was pretty shocking to Charlie. He went back and did double check and double check and came back with the correct information. And again, Amgen wouldn't accept it and didn't want him to publicize it. When he finally did write about it, New York Times picked it up. All of a sudden, he's no longer the golden hair boy of Amgen. But all of a sudden, dot, 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 Northwestern University is on his tail. And then dot, 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 so is the Department of Justice. If you believe that Amgen had nothing to do with it, then you would have to explain to us how Northwestern and the DOJ reacted the way they did for so many years. If you do believe, as we have come to believe, or at least I have come to believe, that Amgen was behind all of this, then it just makes more sense. There's no smoking gun that we can point to. Although we did get, and we have in the book, everything is documented in that book, as you saw, Jay. We have a footnote for every single thing we could. Um, we have in there email after email, internal emails from Amgen officials saying, um, Charlie's become a problem. We've got to do something about Charlie. And in one of them, this woman, the vice president actually said, we have put ringers in Charlie's audience so that if he does try to talk about the problems that Amgen, that he says Amgen has, these people can stand up and disavow him and contradict him and cause him to lose his cool which actually didn't happen. And they were unhappy about that. But those internal emails, those were the things that finally convinced me that it wasn't just dot, dot, dot between Amgen and Northwestern. It was just too coincidental. Um, and we had too, too much evidence. So Jack, yeah. you're, you're, I wanted to wear the pure legal hat, the lawyer hat, in the courtroom, and mm -hmm. again, not the author, not the investigative journalist. I see what Terry is saying. 
And I read the entire book page to page, and I could see where maybe you could deduce the possibility. But it still was, to me, was a possibility. Like there was no conclusive evidence that uh, Amgen was behind. No, you're, you're absolutely right. But just look at Amgen. First, um, you, there's no conclusive proof that Amgen and Northwestern um, were working together. But, but it is the case that once Charlie had actually published very, very important findings that the best-selling drug in the world, which was bringing in $6 billion, EPO, uh, was harmful, uh, which was an enormous uh, public service. Amgen attacks and Northwestern really also attacks sort of indirectly but by undercutting his position. They refuse to talk to me. I call them, I say, I am an a law professor, I have represented a faculty in trouble. I want to uh, investigate what happened with Charlie Bennett, who had such a, a sterling record, and then ended up essentially losing his job, and they wouldn't talk to me. And as I say, I've done this before, and they do talk, talk to me. So why didn't, why didn't Northwestern, which should have really been defending him, why were they so um, uncooperative with Terry and me? One of the things, and this again is not in the court of law, but I went ahead and looked at the uh, backgrounds, bona fides of the people who were on the foundation, the board of directors for Northwestern at the time. It is not at all unusual that the people on board of directors are associated with big pharma big money, big power. They're the ones giving out a lot of the grants for students to be able to come and whatnot. But I was pretty surprised that during the time that Charlie was being um, interrogated and investigated, so many of the people up the ranks of Northwestern to the very top had financial ties to Big Pharma. Yeah, and interesting. Have attorney. you tried reaching out to Amgen, Jack or Terry? Like, have you Have you tried reaching out to Amgen and say, you know, hey, we'd like to talk to somebody there because we're seeing some smoking gun or something? Yes. Yes, I did. And then they said, no, we will not speak to you. And uh, you mean even North and Northwestern? He's asking about Amgen. Yeah, but Amgen, it, um, there was no hesitation, a quick rejection of cooperating with us. His lawyer, Hemden Horton, then refused to cooperate with us. I mean, it it seemed clear that people who were in the Northwestern's hierarchy did not want to cooperate um, and and help Charlie. I mean... Oh, here's something that is odd, Chadi. Maybe you know the I can figure this one out. In the Northwestern handbook and in the American Association of University Professors dealings, you, if you're a faculty member of CUSE or something, you're entitled to a jury of your peers. That is, you're allowed to hear what, what the charge is. For two years, Charlie didn't even know what the charge was. And when he asked for uh, a committee meeting, they wouldn't give him one. 
So by the time he left Northwestern, he had never once been entitled to meet the people who were attacking him. He didn't even know, um, make his case before a faculty meeting. I think if we had been on a jury listening to, as a faculty, um, listening to, to what, I don't know, but Charlie's responses, we would not have locked him out of his offices. We would have not kept him for the money because there was nothing there to do, but yes. Northwestern didn't do what it was supposed to do. And there is a concept called academic freedom, which Terry just kind of spelled out. And under this concept, which great academics have over the course of a hundred years developed to permit people to do research without fear, because in many different areas, doing honorable research can get you in trouble with powerful people, political people and and rich people and so on. I think you and probably the, know that by now. And the American Association of University Professors, led by a great group of, of senior people, developed the idea that no academic should be punished unless you can prove cause against them. And Northwestern says that they follow the guidelines of academic freedom, but they didn't, as Terry said. I think what I saw as I was reading, I saw a case where there is an accusation and the punishment by the institution was out of proportion to the crime, if there is a crime, right? I mean, if we say there's some issues with the reporting, which as you articulated, it wasn't that big of a deal. If we assume this may be, I call this a minor violation. It's like when the FDA comes and audit your report, they say minor violation or major violation. It's certainly minor, but the punishment and the crime were not uh, uh, aligned. And I don't know why an institution turns back against a particular faculty member. I have seen it. Somehow something happens. It still seems too extreme. And I also can see the issue with the, um, you know, a company being upset that their product uh, has more adverse events uh, than this. I still couldn't make the link as a reader. As a reader, uh, I was right. reading the book. I, I mean, I read the book and I knew from speaking with Charlie because I know him personally, his obviously his opinion. But I think the book made me scratch my head, which is probably what you wanted readers to do, right? I mean... I certainly thought no it's I what certainly... we have we want you as a reader to scratch your head that's exactly right we want you to say wait a minute how could this have happened to this honorable man we want you to scratch your head and say there's something wrong with an academic institution we want you to scratch your head and say how could an attorney general follow somebody for four years and badger them into to signing off four hundred and seventy five thousand dollars when you knew that they were innocent we want that's all we can do is have you scratch your right. head. Why didn't why didn't Charlie change his lawyer? I mean, it seems like in reading the book, I was not he had impressed. About well, he, he, <laughs> he did he did change his lawyer and he did um Northwestern provided a lawyer for him. He was very unhappy with the lawyer. Based on my conversations with that lawyer, Charlie was absolutely right to be concerned with him. He then hired uh, another lawyer for uh, part of his defense in, in terms of his use of his grant money. And that guy named James McGurk 
we spoke with, and I believe he understands the case perfectly, and he supports Charlie, and he, you know, has cooperated with us. So as we as we mentioned in the book, McGurk has said several times, this whole thing was so out of bounds. What what Charlie was even purported to have done versus his um, pen, penalty that McGurk thinks if Charlie had just turned around and said, oh, golly, I'm so sorry for whatever. I apologize. I am a good citizen. I'll do whatever you want, that it would have all ended right there. But as McGurk said, Charlie's ego wasn't going to let him say I'm guilty of something when he wasn't guilty. So all of his attorneys had uh, different op opinions of directions to go in, but none of them worked. Yeah. And um, I think McGurk is an honorable man and he did his best for Charlie. But I don't think there's any possibility that if Charlie had been kind of... Um, more uh, more obsequious, let us say, that uh, Northwestern or Amgen would have let up on him, or the U.S. attorney, uh, who was uh, furious at Charlie. And I, you know, I, you know, I have... But, but, but Jack, I mean, I, I can understand, uh, for example... I can understand how big pharma maybe have some influence over academic institutions. I, I'll I'll buy that. Although again, there is smoke, and right. uh, but yeah. you know, and sometimes that's all you can get. But my gosh, I mean, do they also have influence over the U.S. attorney? I mean, now we're in trouble because technically, right? Isn't the U.S. attorney or the district attorney should be partial? If you are an attorney, if you're a government attorney, particularly Assistant. if you're a U.S. attorney, you your record is made by the crimes you uncover, the people whom you expose, and the money you and get. So you have an interest. Uh, you are you're not exactly when you when somebody comes to you with a story about an academic. A very distinguished academic who has millions of dollars. In you salivate. Grants. You salivate. <laughs> yeah, and that—that's what happened. I so, think. So how did how did this end up? I mean, did Charlie then end up like settling and and paying and uh, like how did? Uh, um, I want readers to go to the book and read it, but maybe uh, I mean, is this all behind him right now? Yes and no. There's this horrible cloud hanging over his head where nobody has ever accepted the fact they didn't steal the money because those were the headlines. They read the headlines from Northwestern that says, we settled because we didn't do a good job on grant protection, but it was all under Charlie Bennett. So, you know, they pointed at Charlie Bennett publicly. The um, Department of Justice um, have a lot had a lot of newspaper articles about him. So that is a big cloud over his head. He accepted a nice job at um, South Carolina School of Pharmacy. He's um, started programs again. He's he's publishing again, but it's not the same, is it? You know, the, his life was one thing, and all of a sudden, it's not. And it is the reason we kept going for five years. It is heartbreaking that this could happen to somebody who had not committed a crime. Um, I, I work a lot. I work yeah. a lot with prisoners, and 
um, they've got, <laughs> that's really um, it's it's not a fair trade. No, you know no, what I happened mean, to Charlie. And so, crime, what so what, when did you said. decide? When did you decide? Uh, there's a book out there. I mean, at some point you say we're uncovering a lot and we're going to actually sit down and start writing. When when did that happen? Well, when we first investigated, we were suspicious and we thought, well, let's let's pursue this. Perhaps there's an interesting article in, in it, uh, a remind that we can write that will reinforce the importance of academic freedom um, that will kind of warn people against being too suspicious of academics. But the more we explored it, first of all, I have explored, I personally have explored a fair number of academic incidents and academics usually like to talk to you. And here I am, a person who had, you know, taught at so many different schools and suddenly nobody wants to talk to me. And then, you know, and Terry follows up. She's more persuasive. She's more charming. She didn't get do much better. So neither of us oh, and got too what, far. What hit Jack and the reason he put on his Sherlock Holmes hat is that what should have happened didn't happen in any of the investigations. What, well, where I finally put my foot down and said, there's no going back for me is when I read the internal emails from Amgen, you know, if they, yeah. So I wish the readers would tell us, you know, when I said it's a dot, dot, dot there, maybe they can see, because we put down every single concrete fact we could. We didn't want to go out of limb and blame any of the three institutions because we can't, but there's something wrong with our society. If somebody is a research scientist is trying to help us with adverse reactions, and these are the consequences to them. And that's why we wrote the book. Oh, by the way, it it is not all that amazing. At Stanford, where I taught and uh, in school, <laughs> there was a person named Leonard Hayflick who discovered how um, how to grow human cells in a test tube. Uh, as several scientists have said, this is a Nobel laureate uh, thing. He got crosswise with the administration, and their behavior was no better than um, North than Northwestern's uh, with Charlie. Um, and and I showed the, the the stuff I had on Hayflick to some of the most conservative people at the Stanford faculty, and they said, "You're absolutely right." And yet. He never got his position back. It's funny, you know, injustices take place in academia because partly because people are busy saving their face. Um, uh, uh, and it's it's a way of, of halting uh, a, a line of research. It's, it's sometimes political. Over the years, I, I've been an academic for 50 years, I've seen all kinds of injustice take place. And I've seen the, the least impressive thing is that how rarely academic institutions adequately defend people who are unfairly accused. And this is a, a, a perfect example of that. 
there is a there's a paper written by uh, a scholar uh, who died last year. His name is Joe Simone, and he wrote a paper in cancer research. And he was writing about. You'll enjoy this. I'll send this to you. He was writing about how academic physicians need to deal with the institutions and as they negotiate contracts and everything else. And one segment he actually wrote that resonates with all of us as academics. Um, he says, the institution does not love you back. <laughs> <laughs> and and his right. point is that you always have to really watch out for yourself because they can right. drop you under the bus. I mean, the institutions will continue. We just happen to be bystanders. And they are also just to pursue this metaphor one, they are also very good at faking affection and telling oh, yeah, you, don't worry, we'll, we will, you know, we'll look out for you. Are you talking, um, Jack, about academia or are you talking about big pharma? <laughs> we'll let the <laughs> readers decide when they read the book. But let me, a couple of questions. Uh, Terry, did you struggle in finding publishers for this book? Like as you were trying to shop it yeah. around, yeah. as somebody who is writing, uh, who has a book uh, that's out, it, it took me a while to get that out. How was your experience in finding a publisher and, and selling it around? It was horrible. I wish I could say something kind about the process, but not only were we writing it during COVID, publishers vanished, agents start selling real estate or something on the word. We had no, we couldn't find an agent. We couldn't find a publisher. We were thinking about self-publishing, which is not a bad world, by the way, uh, self-publishing before a friend of a friend, et cetera, introduced our manuscript to Skyhorse Publications. And I'm sure you know about them. They're this big organization that has um, a variety of different publishing arms and children's health defense accepted our manuscript and wanted to have it published. They publish rather controversial points. For instance, they have a book by the attorney general of Florida who says he doesn't believe in vaccines and they're all a communist plot. So <laughs> their, their variety of authors and topics fortunately allowed us to get in. Otherwise, really, we would have just published and it a self-publishing or something because it was really, really hard. We didn't even get responses back. We could send manuscripts. We could send letters. We could have friends of friends. Nothing. And I think it was mostly because of COVID, but it was also because it was such a charged topic. Yes. One, one thing as a counterpoint, but everybody who read it, you know, said, these, yeah, very good, good work. You know, you everybody needs to read this. Yes. So we would be getting um, favorable readings, but a professional rejection. No, I uh, as somebody I, I read a lot of books. I, lo I love reading books and I actually love interviewing authors of book because books because I, I think it's it's a lot of work and. As I said, uh, the book is a quick but fascinating read. I finished it in one weekend and I really enjoyed it. So congratulations. I have a feeling this may end up being a documentary somewhere. We'll have to see, but it certainly has all the smells of the of possible documentary uh, on Netflix. Let's hope so. <laughs> I, have, I have one sort of positive story to end with. Charlie came to the University of Texas and he and I presented his story to the faculty, to the law faculty. And at the end, we, we, when we finished, waited for questions. Question one, who's going to play you in the movie? 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I'd like to be part of the movie because, and I, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, let's see. I gotta talk to my agent. I always wanted to be in Hollywood. It's not working. It's not going right. well. Right. But no, we'll I keep mean, you on the list. Here, in all in all seriousness, this is really a fascinating read. I certainly you got me thinking, and 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 I think that there's there are certain situations where you just you know you hypothesize, you think, and you have to come to your own conclusions. So it's really interesting. Um, Thank you. And I think I, I'm sure we both think you asked really good questions. Right. It was nice to have somebody read the book first. And your Thank concerns you. and your concerns were all, were all legitimate. You know, we answered yeah. them as best we could. But you asked the kinds of questions. I don't want to go too far with this because I don't want to look like I'm ass kissing. But the truth is, you ask good questions, and I think we were able to use this occasion to explain why we think the book says something that's worth saying. Absolutely, and I agree. And I really, I, as I said, I mean, I read a lot of book. I don't always rate books because I don't have the time. But I certainly wrote a review and I rated it. And I so the book is taking on big pharma. Uh, the story of Charlie Bennett, and I hope that a lot of folks are able to check it out. And uh, we hope so too. And, uh, thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you being with me on this show and supporting the show. Don't forget to tell me what you think. And if you like this podcast and you are an avid listener, write a brief review, rate the show, and direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, demanding the amazing t-shirt, the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t-shirt. I will mail it to you anytime you actually want. You can always watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and you can visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Don't forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Also read it and offer a review. And thank you to Terry and Jack for writing the book. Thanks for Charlie to fighting the good fight and for being part of this book investigation. Check out this book, write a review for it, buy it, and let the authors know what they think. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Buddha. Three things cannot be long hidden. The sun, the moon, and the truth. Until next time, take care.